um, after a long hiatus, we're back here in Luke. I realized on Thursday that we actually ended our time in Luke with this text way back in March when we were blissfully ignorant about what 2020 would uh, hold. It was just sort of exciting uh, to be forced into a house church setting. The week before Shelter in Place, we ended up canceling the Sunday gathering and uh, moving our Sunday service to houses, to homes. And CJ had everyone discuss this text. And so you might remember it. But I had already begun prepping the sermon before when I realized this, and so this is what we're preaching. Um, And so let's pray, and we'll begin. Dear Father, uh, I'm so glad you're having us revisit this text this morning. Um, I needed it this week. I'll need it next week and the week after. Um, In a season when we are regularly questioning the worth and the cost of so many things. Uh, We need a reminder to not question the worth and cost of following you. Um, Father, would you help us this morning to commit to you, to recommit to you, uh, to hold fast, um, recognizing what that entails Um, but that you are always worth it. I pray that you'd open our eyes. I pray that the Spirit would unite us as a community, uh, even though we're spread out around the city and the Bay Area. um, We ask for unity around Jesus this morning, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, I wonder if you are human, um, And so you have ever made a decision that involved a lot more difficulty than you anticipated. Um, I'm moving my screen around a little bit. That is a pretty like common, um, common occurrence, right? Where you start a job that was more than you uh, bargained for. You climb a ladder to a diving board that is a little bit higher than you thought it was. You bit off more than you can chew. I literally did that this week. Maggie and I got sushi Friday night. We put the kids to bed and had sushi at like 930. And you know, sushi, you're supposed to eat the whole thing. And sometimes you eat it and you have to like pause everything and like brainstorm how you're going to finish this bite without like choking or gagging. Um, You like can't listen to anything. It takes a lot of focus. Um, This is what Luke 9 is about, uh, warning us about the cost of discipleship, the demands of the job, the height of the ladder, the size of the bite. Uh, Before we get into it, though, let's get back into the story. Um, We've been away from Luke for six months, and it's really important to read the Gospels as a unified story. These scenes aren't random, uh, but have been arranged intentionally with one leading to the next, just like a movie. And so we want to put this story in context. Uh, Thus far in Jesus' ministry, Jesus has been mostly moving from town to town in the countryside of Galilee, making a name for himself. He's been performing miracles, healing sickness, and casting out demons, befriending sinners and outcasts, distinguishing himself from the religious status quo, where he is clearly a very different 
different man than they have ever experienced before. And in this way, Luke has been emphasizing Jesus' identity and character, that he is a different man, that he is the God-man, he's the Messiah. And so he's answering the question of his readers, who is he, what is he like? He is the Son of God, the Messiah, bearing the good news of God's restored kingdom. And so this part of the story really reaches its climax in Peter's sacred confession when Jesus, earlier in chapter 9, says, um, Jesus asks Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, the Christ of God. This is the climax of this portion of the story. Um, Only then... The climax is really cut short, at least from a human perspective, from Peter's perspective, when Jesus follows Peter's confession with a confession of his own. He charges them to tell no one this, this climax, this like great realization of Peter. Don't tell anyone. In fact, he says that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And then if that weren't shocking enough, he adds, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. That is a gut punch. Um, We are very used to the idea of Jesus dying uh, for our sins, but this is the first time the disciples had heard of this. Um, It would have been a completely new and left field and wild thing for Jesus to say. Imagine hearing this for the first time. I love Luke's transition after this hard saying of Christ. He says, now about eight days after these sayings. It's like the longest awkward silence in the whole Bible, that there's just this eight days of nothing. We don't even know what is happening. And I just picture the disciples just going through the motions, not asking uh, Jesus questions, fake smiles, like complying with him, but sort of secretly wrestling with what they just heard from Jesus, where Jesus is going and where he's asking them to go. Uh, Commentators see Luke 9.51 as a literary turning point. Um, It says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so what you have here is he's been wandering around, gathering influence, celebrity, followers, and now he's going to go and squander that celebrity all by having himself killed. He's going to go to Jerusalem. His mind is made up. There's no dissuading him. This is what the scriptures had foretold. But then instead of getting right there, uh, going straight to Jerusalem, we have this 10 chapter section uh, between Jesus deciding to go to Jerusalem and actually arriving there. 10 chapters, that's a third of the entire Gospel of Luke, uh, devoted to this long meandering walk toward the cross. And you can wonder why. We already know who Jesus is. Now we know why Jesus came. Why the long journey? Let's get to it. Let's get to the forgiveness of sins and to the defeat of death. Well, in this long section of Luke, the emphasis shifts from who Jesus is to what it means to follow him. It is really written for disciples because to receive God's salvation is not only necessary that we know who Jesus is and what he's done and why, it's also necessary that that knowledge transform us, that we become his disciples and we remain his disciples for our lifetime. That's what faith means, trusting God with our life. 
And that's no easy task. And so to help us on our way, Luke slows the story way down and he gives lots of space for Christ to teach us and disciple us. And so you have in this 10 chapters, miracles really take a backseat. We, in in chapters four through nine, it's just miracle after miracle, constantly a lot of the same miracles over and over again to where you're sort of like, yeah, we get it, we understand, let's get past this. Um, and so there are very few miracles. Um, it's a lot of teaching, a lot of parables, a lot of interactions with the religious leaders, which is teaching the disciples how Jesus is different from the Pharisees and the scribes and the zealots and the Romans and such. And it's all aimed at preparing us for a life of discipleship. Well, if that is the purpose of this 10-chapter section, it makes sense then that this section would open up with three guys ready to start their journey with Jesus. And so they it's almost like they've read the book of Luke up to this point. They're convinced Jesus is the Messiah. They're calling him Lord. They're confessing their allegiance. They believe. And so how does Jesus respond to them on their first day of discipleship? And so Luke 9, 57 to 62, I'm going to read this numerous times throughout the sermon. And I just, I want you to hear it as a story. And, and as I read it now, I want you to hear the genuineness of these three men. They are genuinely pursuing Jesus. And so let's read it. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But that man said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And so what do you think? First day as a disciple, confessing your allegiance to Jesus, how do you feel about Jesus's response to these three men? It feels kind of harsh, doesn't it? As we're uh, thinking about it. Uh, No one can accuse Jesus of bait and switch. He's realistic fully. Uh, Luke 9 emphasizes right up front just what kind of life Christian disciples are signing up for. Uh, These men are not yet Christians, and Jesus mercifully gives interested disciples a chance to back out. He's asking, are you sure? I don't want you to start out with me only to back out later. Not for my sake. I don't need you. I'm going to Jerusalem regardless whether you come or not. But I'm asking these questions for your sake, for our sake. Are you sure? In Luke 14, he'll make the same point with a parable. He says, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Um. I mentioned the ladder to the diving board, and I remember distinctly one time as a kid, uh, there was a lake, uh, like a a park at a lake, and it there was this ladder, and I climbed a ladder to a 25-foot diving platform, and then stood there for probably like 25 minutes as a kid, and then shamefully climbed back down the ladder, you know, I had to like, excuse me, I'm sorry, you know, like interrupted the whole flow, and uh, I was mocked for that. Um, 
Jesus wants to save us from this. He wants us to count the cost. What does it cost to follow Jesus? It costs everything. Uh, Luke 14, 33, just a few verses later, it says, Therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And this is important for new Christians to grapple with. And it's also important for those of us who are already Christians, who've been disciples for years. Because we commit to Jesus knowing generically that it's a whole life commitment, that we're giving up all. But we only learn the specifics of our commitment as we move along. And so sometimes you spend a week wondering, is this really what I signed up for? Like when I committed to Jesus, is this what he meant? Is this what discipleship requires? When I decided to become a pastor, get married, become a dad, adopt a child, move to San Francisco, plant a church, decisions that were hard enough to make on the front end, but are so much harder to carry out. And you can ask yourself, am I doing this right? Did I miss something? And reading Luke 9 helps you roll back the tape and say, yep, yep, this is exactly what Jesus said. Uh, This is what he asks us to do. And of course, we gain so much more than we lose. Um, It's imperative that in following Jesus, we recount the benefits of Christ. Um, That we do what Jesus did, uh, which Hebrews 12 tells us was to look ahead For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. That's how Christ endured, is because he looked on the other side of the cross. And that's how Christians endure. We look on the other side of the cross as well. There's joy ahead. But there is also genuine loss that comes with following Christ. A life with Jesus is an exchange of one life for another. And so we exchange our sinfulness for his righteousness, our estrangement for his sonship, our poverty for his riches, our death for his life. But we also, in that exchange, exchange our life for his death, our self-preservation for his self-denial, our comfort for his cross. There's no way around it. Luke 9.23, again, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. If you want to follow me, Jesus is saying, you're going to have to stop what you're doing now, all the activities and habits and strategies and relationships you're engaged in in order to preserve your life. You're going to have to stop those things and instead take up something that is actually aimed and designed to kill your life, an uncomfortable, heavy cross. And these unappealing terms come with a promise and a warning. Luke 9.24 says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And so, blessedly, there's the offer of saving your life, but it comes at the cost of losing your life. That's the paradox of Christian discipleship. We save our lives by losing it. We really don't like choices like this, Uh, choices which close doors, right? We like options. We want to keep our options open. We don't like choices. And so in March, CJ asked us about our backup plans. Uh, What are your backup plans if Jesus doesn't work out? 
Uh, how are you diversifying your investments just in case Jesus proves untrustworthy? Are you hedging your bets because you don't want to put all your eggs in the Easter basket? Well, that doesn't really work for the Christian gospel because the Easter basket is all we have, right? Paul said in 1 Corinthians, if the gospel isn't true and resurrection isn't possible, then we are of all men most to be pitied. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, if it's only about having a flourishing and good life now, we are wasting our time. And the reason Paul says this is because he had quite literally given up everything to follow Jesus. After having spent his life moving up the ladder of Jewish respectability, circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul had given himself to Jewish perfection. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Paul threw his life away. He was fully invested in the truth of the resurrection. He went all in. He pushed all his chips across the table. Before even drawing a de- uh, drawing his hand, he pushed his chips across because he trusted Jesus. And for most of his life, he looked like he was losing. Uh, but he did not lose. He is with Christ. To die is gain. And he died and he gained. We don't like cho- uh, choices, though. We like options. And if at all possible, we'd love to say yes to multiple options. Why not, right? Can't I follow Jesus and also receive comfort, success, approval, security? We love both ands, win-wins. Um, if I can both follow Jesus and be successful, follow Jesus and be loved and be comfortable, it's a win-win for me, right? But Christian discipleship in the New Testament is plainly not both and. It's not a win-win. It's an either-or situation. And that's because Christian discipleship isn't a class we take or a school we attend. It's not a technique. It's a relationship. And specifically, it's like a marriage relationship. And marriages are not both and, right? They are either or. There are no side checks, right? No side uh, people in a Christian Christian covenant relationship. It's not both and. And it's not win-win either, It is a win-lose, where part of you wins and part of you loses. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield uh, writes candidly about the difficulty of her conversion to Christ. Uh, She came to Christ rather shockingly and suddenly to her when she was a tenured gender studies professor at Syracuse University, and Christ turned her world upside down. And she says, healing to the sinner is death. Uh, surviving means sacrificing something of you. It's a win-lose situation. And that's where we have to be really careful about flourishing language, uh, which is uh, in vogue uh, today and is language that I really like a ton. I love the language of flourishing. It reminds me of Eden. It reminds me of um, Shalom, 
Um, but we want to be careful that we don't give people and give ourselves a false hope, right? There is definitely a kind of flourishing that the gospel leads to in this life, and then the best kind of flourishing, eternal flourishing. But there is also a kind of flourishing that it squarely does not lead to. And for these three men, to take their example, man, having a place to lay your head is a kind of flourishing. It's a good thing. It's a thing that God desires to give his people. A caring for aging parents, uh, being with them in their last days of life, uh, that is a good thing. It's a kind of flourishing. Uh, Maintaining connections with our past, these are good things. But Jesus tells these three men that this kind of flourishing they will have to live without, that in their respective situations, um, it's a flourishing that they're going to have to lose if they want to win the kingdom, if they really want to follow Jesus. If that bothers you, if it gives you pause, if it sort of makes you squirm, you are reading the Bible correctly. Um, It is meant to bother you, uh, to pause and count the cost of discipleship. Jesus is challenging us this morning. Uh, It's important that we don't psychoanalyze these characters too much. Luke is intentionally vague. We don't know anything about these three men. We don't know the details of their lives or their outlook on life. Uh, The second one was called by Christ to discipleship. The first and third initiated discipleship themselves. And so altogether, this means that it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how you come to Christ. Luke is not saying, don't be like these three men. Quite the opposite. He is saying, you are like them. This is us. This is me. This is you. We are them. I don't know what I'm saying when I tell Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. I'm like the third man or the first man. When I say that, I don't know what I'm saying. I'm like the second and third guy who has doubts. I wonder if I should have a backup plan. I'm attracted to other masters. I worry. I ask what if. I look back over my shoulder wondering what I'm missing. I am these men. And Jesus would say these same things to me. And he is speaking the same things to you this morning. In the first man, he is saying to you, I appreciate your eagerness. I love it. But I need to tell you, I hear something else in your voice. It seems like you have misplaced expectations, that you don't quite understand where this journey is going to. In the second and third man, he is saying to you, I appreciate your honesty, being upfront about these other burdens and commitments that you have, but the exception you're asking for, to first attend to your obligations, to go back and say goodbye, which seem like reasonable requests on the surface, actually lead me to think that there's something deeper happening in your heart. You're hesitant, you're worried, you're distracted. What would Jesus hear in your voice this morning? Will you let him disciple you and challenge you? He's a master teacher. He's discipled literally millions of men and women to holiness in heaven. Let's remember that. Jesus has faithfully carried millions of men and women from lostness through life to holiness and heaven. 
Will you trust him to disciple you this morning? To challenge you? Will you let him deny you a request to say no to your very reasonable question because of the greater thing that he wants for you? At this point, I think it's really important that we pause and ask ourselves about Jesus's tone. How are we responding to Jesus's voice this morning? How is your body responding to this word? Your heart rate, your countenance, your heaviness? Uh, What do you feel as you hear these words of Jesus? How is Jesus speaking to you? Do you hear a coldness in his voice? where he says, leave the dead to bury their own dead, like he doesn't really care about you? Do you hear him asking you to prove yourself? Is he disappointed in you, scoffing? No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God, dismissing you. Man, none of those qualities match what we know of Jesus already from Luke 1 through 9, right? That's not how Jesus speaks to people who want to follow him. And so if that's what you hear, if that's what I hear, we need to adjust the EQ on our heart so that we can hear Jesus accurately, like the compassionate Savior that he is. And so think about this story. What is the tone of Jesus's voice? We've got options. He could be speaking to you with some heaviness uh, in the immediate context. He's just been rejected in Samaria and completely misunderstood by his closest disciples, James and John. And so he could be sad over his own sense of homelessness. And so some guy runs up and enthusiastically says, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus sees this man. He sees his future and what discipleship will cost him. He knows that that enthusiasm will wane. He knows what he's asking of him more fully than he knows. And so maybe he's heavy. Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Are you sure? Do you know what you're asking? Jesus' voice could be the voice of a man on a mission, which of course he was. He had set his face toward Jerusalem. And so when he approaches a guy and tells him, follow me, and the guy responds, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus might respond matter-of-factly, like a boss, a master, a king. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. We don't have time for that. Other people can handle that. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. He could be speaking with frustration. Jesus is allowed to be frustrated with us, right? He, so when the last guy sort of half commits... I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those in my home. This is like someone who asks for a two-hour lunch on their first day of work, right? Um, And Jesus can be frustrated and say, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Why are you asking that for me? Come on, man, what do you think this is? Jesus could be speaking in any of those voices to these men. He's allowed to speak in any of those voices to us. And maybe he's speaking to us all in those voices, or in all those voices. And we need to sort of read this text repeatedly and allow Jesus to speak in all those ways. This morning, though, I want to ask you to read Jesus' voice as hopeful and encouraging. Could you read it with 
a hopefulness. So that Jesus is in no way dismissing these men. He's not writing them off, but is actually inviting them in. He is already beginning to joyfully disciple them. And so read it with me again. Um, As they were going along the road, someone says to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus responds, man, are you sure? Are you sure? Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Is this the life you really want? I hope so. I want you. I love you, but I want you to know the truth. I want you to know what you're signing up for. Uh, To another, he says, follow me. But that man says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus says, friend, man, let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God, right? Placing both hands on his shoulders, looking him in the eye. I think about a lot of times I don't read these stories with Jesus's body language, with his physical care uh, for people. And so when the last guy comes up and says, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those in my home. I just picture Jesus putting both hands on his shoulders, looking him in the eye and saying, hey, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. But I believe in you. I'll make you fit for the kingdom. Don't look back. It's time to go now. We don't have time for you to go back. What would it mean if you heard in Jesus' words his hope for you, his desire for you, his active investment in your life. As hard as the exchange of discipleship is, as hard as it can feel, there's just no comfortable way to carry a cross. Still, we have to remember that Jesus is offering these men good news. Because hidden in the cost of discipleship is the gift of freedom. Hidden in the cost of discipleship is the freedom of discipleship. To the first man, he's offering a freedom from place. Why does Jesus respond to a man's promise to follow him wherever he goes with a statement about the son of man's homelessness? Like, what does that mean? And I wonder if he saw in the disciples' heart an assumption that Jesus was going somewhere, that at some point Jesus would stop and land and they would feel at home. I'll follow you wherever you go. Where are we going? We're going somewhere, right? Eventually we're going to land somewhere, settle down and get comfortable. And wherever that is, Jesus, I want to be there with you. And Jesus is saying, we're not going to arrive anywhere. Not in this life. If you ride with me, you won't ever really feel at home in this world. Now, how is this freeing to the man? And it's freeing because humans spend a lot of energy trying to feel at home in this world. So much energy, so much emotion, so much money, so much change where we will disrupt our entire life in hopes that the next place will make us feel at home. And I wonder if the hyper-transient nature of our culture and even our city is not an underemphasis on place, it's actually the product of an overemphasis on place. 
We put too much hope in finding a place to call our own. And Jesus wants to free us from that burden. He's saying to you and me, all you need to feel at home is me. That's all you need. You don't need a nest. You don't need a hole. Who wants a hole? Am I really going to be jealous of foxes and birds and people without Jesus? Am I going to let lost people set the terms of my satisfaction? Jesus wants to free us from those terms. And honestly, I was a little nervous articulating this in this way Uh, to a church in San Francisco, to a church that has lost so many people over the years, uh, to give you and to say that Jesus is giving you a freedom from place. But as scared as I am to tell you that Jesus frees you from place, maybe it's actually what Christians in San Francisco need in order to give their entire lives to this city. Because it's going to be smoky every year in September. I mean, realistically, it, it's gonna, we're going to have this for a while. Hopefully, it'll get cheaper. People will move out, and so uh, our rent will go down. But it's never going to be cheap enough, right? It's never going to get like Omaha, Nebraska-level cheap. Um, it's going to be San Francisco prices. The culture isn't going to get easier. We will never be people's favorite, okay? It won't feel like home. But Jesus is saying to you and to me and to this man, that's okay. No place, no matter how familiar, no matter how comfortable, no matter how safe, will feel like home without me. And so to be a disciple is to be free from the burden of making a home here on this planet. And so maybe freedom from place will lead some of, will lead some of you to leave San Francisco in faith and obedience to Jesus. And maybe it will empower some of you to stay. That even though San Francisco is not the homiest and it feels like it's constantly pushing people out, um, I don't need a place. I'm free from that. I have Jesus. To the second man, he's offering freedom from duty. This guy is clearly an honorable man. He wants to do what's right. And so here you have Jesus the Messiah asking him to be a disciple. Jesus didn't just ask anybody, right? He didn't ask the first and the third guy. They invited themselves to the party. Um, But this guy, the second guy, Jesus asks and invites him to follow him. But he hesitates. And he hesitates because of a sense of obligation to his family. Uh, It's unlikely that his father had just died. So it's not like he's just asking for time for a quick funeral. he wouldn't be out and about with Jesus if that were the case. And so what the man means by his question is, my parents are old uh, and they need me. Uh, Let me settle this obligation first and then, Jesus, I'm all yours. When Jesus responds, let the dead bury their own dead, he's not scolding him, he's freeing him. He's saying to him, this conflicted sense of duty you have, I guess it's good, but it's corrupting your perspective. It's confusing you, and so I'm freeing you from it. Other people can take care of your parents, but as for you, proclaiming the kingdom of God is what you need to be doing. Again, I'm hesitant to encourage freedom from duty in an individualistic, fractured, commitment-avoidant culture, 
but could this actually be what people need? Uh, because I know most of you, most of you are not the flighty, do whatever I want, breaking commitments all the time kind of people. And so the reality is most of us struggle with too many commitments, a strong sense of duty that spreads us so thin and, and really so thin that we're distracted from following Jesus. We have too many commitments and they weigh us down. And so we need to hear Jesus say, where's that sense of duty coming from? I'm not asking you to do that. Anybody can do that. I'm asking you to give your life to me. And this is where the all-encompassing nature of Christian discipleship is actually freeing. Because at the end of your life, we will give an account to the Lord and to no one else. And so all those other duties and expectations that you're holding on to, if it's not from Jesus, it doesn't matter. And so be free from that. To the third man, I'm not really sure how to articulate it, uh, but it seems like Jesus is offering, offering him freedom from regret. Freedom from what ifs, a clean break from the past. Um, that's not really what the man says. He asks if he can go to his hometown and say goodbye. But in his desire to say goodbye, it seems like Jesus knew this wouldn't be the last time he'd asked to go home. Um, it's not like a farewell that would provide closure for him. In fact, it would feed an impulse to be always looking back, longing for what he left behind. And that's not going to work in God's kingdom. This is especially hard in a technological age, right? Before the 20th century, when a missionary said goodbye, that was it. You never saw them again until heaven. And it's such a blessing to have cell phones and airplanes where I can call my parents every week. I can call my friends. I can get updates. I can see birth announcements and marriage announcements and those sorts of things. Um, I can fly home once a year. My parents fly to me. Um, but that, free, that uh, ability is double-edged. Uh, because it also means that I'm regularly looking back from the plow. I'm tempted to look back and wonder what could have been, what could be. Man, how much added difficulty, emotional difficulty um, do we have? Because all of us with varying degrees of effort could uproot our lives tomorrow. Like we could just decide to get up and go. Um, and that creates added anxiety so that every day we're wondering and with every struggle, we're wondering if we're not sort of wondering what is God doing in my life? How is he sanctifying me? We're not only wondering that, but we're often overwhelmed by the question is, is this a sign I should move? Is this a sign I should change jobs? Is this a sign I should change churches? Um, how much does that distract us from maturity and mission? And so when Jesus says to this man, optimistically with hope, hey, hey friend, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. I know you're going to miss your family. I know you're going to miss your friends and your home feeling comfortable. I know you miss not, not caring about holiness and caring about more mundane things, um, not sweating behind this damn plow. But the kingdom of God is worth it. You can do this. If the opportunity to go back was off the table, what would you do? You'd grow. With all these questions, 
Luke is asking us as disciples, what's keeping you from following Jesus with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength? What feels like a cost, which is actually a burden that Jesus wants to free you from? Are you investing too much in place and frustrated that following Jesus hasn't landed you somewhere yet? You never feel at home. Are you delaying the call to proclaim the kingdom out of a sense of duty to other obligations, obligations which Jesus cares less about? Are you constantly looking back over your shoulder and sad for what you've left behind? Or maybe it's something completely different. Put yourselves in these men's shoes. If Jesus put his hand on your shoulders this morning with a smile on his face, hope and affection in his voice, what would he say to you? Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of God has nowhere to lay his head. Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. I want to believe that these three men received Jesus' words and ultimately became his disciples. Um, I don't know, the text isn't clear. We don't know if these men became disciples or if they uh, declined, Uh, but I want to believe it. What I do know is that every disciple of Jesus, not just these guys, but all the way to the best 12, failed Jesus at the end. And so we can't hear from Jesus an expectation of perfection in his call. Uh, He knew that he was going to Jerusalem to pay for the sins of these men, uh, these closest of disciples. When he finally makes it to Jerusalem, he's arrested and it's clear that he's going to be killed. They scatter in fear. Uh, Not only do they look back from the plow, they drop the plow and they leave the work entirely. And we do that too. And sometimes we look back, sometimes we leave the field. We're gone for an hour, for a month, for years. But because of Jesus' death on the cross, he will always receive us back when we come back. And he will never speak to us coldly, with anger, with disappointment, And so again, if you're hearing shame and guilt in the voice of Jesus this morning, let the gospel dispel your fears. Hear in his voice hope. Hear in his voice enthusiasm. Hear in his voice fatherly care. Let communion remind you that you are forgiven. This is not the bread of shame, right? It's the bread of life. You are welcome here. If I am welcome, you are welcome too. And if you're not a Christian, don't be scared of discipleship. God is gracious and forgiving. He is faithful. He knows your heart. He knows your past, your present, your future, and he loves you and he wants you. It won't be easy, but it will be worth it eventually. Trust Jesus's words this morning. And if you're not so sure about his words, trust his voice. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful for your words. And we're thankful that the Gospels are not just a collection of sayings of Jesus, 
but that the four canonical gospels are all stories which give us a full picture of the character of Jesus. That we can hear your voice because they're set in the context of your actions. And already thus far, we've seen you heal people. We've seen you cast out demons. We've seen you befriend sinners and uh, even invite sinners like Matthew, the tax collector, to be your, one of your closest disciples. And then, of course, we know that you died on the cross for our sins, that you suffered death, um, that you were obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross for our sake, and that you rose from the grave, and that even after that, you didn't come back and were, you didn't scold your disciples for abandoning you in your hour of need, but you welcomed them back. You reconciled with Peter. Father, you are so good. Jesus, you are so good. Help us to hear your voice this morning. Even as you might challenge us and say hard things, you know it's hard. You know what's hard. Um, But you are here for us and with us. Father, I pray for that voice to just resound in our hearts. Your hope, your compassion, your grace, your enthusiasm, your love. Help us to hear that this morning and help us to respond to your voice with obedience and to follow you no matter the cost, that we would hear you and believe you, that all those who will lose their lives for your sake will save their lives. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.